Let's hear God's word together. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then we read from the New Testament, from the book of Hebrews, these words from chapter 12, 11, 11, okay. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. The story of Cain and Abel is the story of two men bringing their harvest offerings. I'm aware that we haven't had a formal Sunday that we've called Harvest Thanksgiving this, this year. But in a sense, right through this whole month, as we've been looking at Genesis and we've been looking at creation and we've been thinking about these things, we've been having our harvest thanksgiving and as we've been bringing our thanksgiving gifts for the gift day we've been responding 
um, in our Harvest Thanksgiving, but we haven't sung the song, have we? So I thought we'd do that just now. We'd praise God with the familiar words of we plow the fields and scatter. So let's sing. pray. Father, as we come to your word just now, we pray that we wouldn't just be singing your praise, but we would be living it. We pray that as we explore this ancient story that you would speak to us, that we might glorify you in our lives today. Amen. So we got to the fourth chapter of Genesis, and um, 
It's a harvest thanksgiving. Right there in the beginning of the Bible, Cain brought fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought the fruits of the farm, the cattle, as an offering to the Lord. They brought their harvest gifts, and there they are coming together to worship the Lord. No doubt humming, we plow the fields and scatter as they do it. A nice picture, isn't it? Of what will become a very different story. Again, this story comes at a point in all that we've been learning from the early chapters of the book of Genesis. It's always worthwhile when you get a story in the Bible of of thinking where it's come from. We've talked about creation, Genesis chapter 1, all of creation made, but also an instruction to human beings to go and be fruitful and to multiply, to make the earth bloom. Genesis chapter 2, we looked at with that instruction, not just to be those that ruled over the earth, but human beings to till it, work it, to look after it, to protect it, that it might blossom and it might produce. God giving his beautiful gift of creation to us, but doing it in order that we would work it and there would be growth. Creation is the story of of God making all things, God creating all things. Why has this just gone off? Because, no, I don't know is the answer. I might have to do it without particularly low battery, does that mean I've not plugged it in? I was talking about oh well I'll just have to talk a bit, I don't know I've I've, I've probably done the switch the wrong way around Colin right, okay that's that's, I'm going on to talk about division of labour here, so yeah that seems like a good, a good division of labor. Yes. There we are. It wasn't getting any power, so I guess I just have That'll be it now. I can take it from this. Yeah. An apple. You know what apples caused. Anyway, the point here is that these early chapters are the story of God creating, but they're also the story of a mandate given to humanity that we might be creative, that we might make the world bloom. In fact, Eve gets it right at the beginning of chapter 4 when she says this, um, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant. She gave birth to Cain and she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. It's really interesting what she says there. With the help of the Lord. She doesn't say with the help of my husband. He was hopeless at changing nappies, obviously. He was no help whatsoever. She said, I've brought forth this man with the help of the Lord. But actually, you know, that's very important what she says there, and she's right. She's acknowledging at the beginning, yes, I have done this marvelous thing. I've brought forth life. But I've been able to do that because the Lord has enabled it. He is the creator, and we are the procreators. Hence, we get that word procreation, procreation, because it means to create alongside. God has given us, as we're made in his image, this gift of being able to create. So, Eve is a procreator. 
We are utterly dependent on him. It was interesting, we were singing that song, we plow the fields and scatter, and, and it's significant. We plow the fields and scatter the good seed on the ground. And we all think, yeah, that's harvest. We plow the fields and scatter. We don't, but we'll get onto that in a minute. But here's the point. It is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. And if you actually listen to the words of the rest of the hymn, they didn't talk at all about what we do. They didn't talk about tractors or, or production or blacksmiths or any of those things. They talked completely about what God has done. You see, looking at what we are able to do, suddenly our hearts turn to, but we're able to do all of this because of God's goodness, God's provision, God's Son. He gives the rain and He gives the, the, he gives the, the warmth and He gives everything that we need. And that is one of the things that as we think about harvest at this time of year and why churches do it, is that we are very much aware of our utter dependence on God. And particularly in our mechanical mass-produced societies where we just think it arrives in Tesco and we don't really think about it, we're made aware of just what a gift creation is for us and we become thankful. You see, very basic to all worship is just this. It is gratitude. We come aware of what God has done and therefore we respond in worship. And if we don't get that right, then we have a real problem because sometimes when we come to worship, we don't come to bring the Lord an offering, we come to receive one. You know, I have all sorts of folk, and we've all done it as we've come out of church and said, well, that did nothing for me today. Was the church supposed to be giving you an offering? I got nothing out of that. It wasn't the hymns that I like. As if we came to church in order that the church, the minister, the other congregational members, whatever it was, would give us something because we deserve it. For our glory and our honor and our comfort. And if God hasn't provided that when I came to worship him, what type of God is he? See how we've got that the wrong way around? Worship is where I come and I say, he is terrific. Let him have something from me that costs me. It's why people in days before central heatings walked miles to church in bad weather into uncomfortable buildings and sat there for three hours because they were grateful. I don't mean they were grateful to the minister who kept them there for three hours. That's not what I mean. I meant they felt that God was worth it. It's why people met in catacombs when Caesar's men were out to get him. It's why many of our, our fellow Christians will meet in places today which are incredibly dangerous in parts of the world where the soldiers may come or the police may be at the door. They will do that because they are grateful to God and it is worth bringing something to him that costs us. But sometimes we leave church thinking, I didn't get my due this morning. Gratitude. It changes everything because it changes not just our attitude to God, but to one another. Cain gets this so wrong. It's a bit of a mystery what's actually going on here. It's, it's not completely clear from the text. Why does God reject one offering and accept another? But you know what? Life's not always fair. Is it? 
And it's so easy again to focus on that. And so rather than come and say, I'm grateful for all that God has given me, you think, well, I wish he'd given me what he's given to Sam. And my nose is out of joint. Instead of looking at what I've got, I look at what someone else has got and the world is unfair. Maybe the point of this story is that it wasn't fair. Or at least it seemed not fair to Cain in ways that we can't understand. But his heart went to a bitter, raging place rather than being filled with gratitude. Hebrews gives us a bit of a clue in the passage we read where it says, by faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteousness. And by faith he still speaks. What does that mean? Well, maybe the clue to it is in the fourth verse of the passage we read. Abel brought an offering, the fat portions of some of the first of his flock. You see, what happened here was that Abel brought the first fruits. And what that meant was when you had uh, sheep, you were a sheep farmer. You gave God the first one that was born. If you had cows, you gave God the first calf that was born. And it really was a sacrificial thing to do because most of the time when we give to God, we give out of our excess, don't we? We, we, we get all the things that we need and then we say, what's left over? And I'll give a bit of that to God. That's sensible. But what faith does and what Abel did here is he came and he said, I am completely dependent on the Lord. And therefore, I will give him the best. I will give him the first fruit. Now, I have to trust that there'll be a second fruit, that there'll be enough for me. That's giving by faith, isn't it? It was a real deep desire and gratitude from God. As I look at all I've got, I'm filled with gratitude. You know, it's quite easy when we look at all we've got to be filled with self-sufficiency. Well, look at all I've got. I've earned lots. I've got money in the bank. I've been sensible with the way I've, I've done things, and I'm fine. That's great. But what is it to look at all I've got and say, I have all of this because the Lord gave it to me. I earned all of this with the help of the Lord. All I have is by his provision. All I produce is by his strength. All I am, I am because of him. And therefore I come with gratitude, with faith and trust. And I keep trusting, even if it's hard and it's difficult and I don't seem to have enough, that God will keep providing for me because I'm filled with trust for him. Abel had that attitude before God. Cain did not. Wow, what a wonderful God we have that he has enabled us to do all of this. But here's another lesson from this passage. Abel kept flock and Cain worked the soil. Now that doesn't mean that Abel kept flock, so he was wearing lots of woolly jumpers and he had lamb on the table every day and Cain, um, he, he tended his farm, so he was a vegetarian and ate vegetables all the day and I don't know what he wore, banana skin. Rather it's implying, isn't it, that they did different things and then no doubt they traded it's the division of labor. It's the basis of which economics are based on today. More and more specialism. 
And it teaches us that just as we are dependent on God, so we are dependent on each other, aren't we? They literally kept each other. They were each other's keeper. You know, one kept the other in potatoes, and the other kept the other in sheepskins. That's what they did. They were dependent on one another. You see, when we sing, we plow the fields and scatter, I could ask this question. How many of you plow fields? Anyone ever plowed a field? How many of you scatter? So why are you singing we plow the fields and scatter? Because you don't. But the we needs to be more than that, doesn't it? Because harvest isn't just a sort of traditional throwback where we put a bit of corn behind our ears and we all pretend we're farmers for the day. Rather, it's about saying as a community, as a society, we plow the fields and scatter. Some of us work in a bank. Some of us are hairdressers. Some of us work in a factory. Some of us work in an accounts office. We have all sorts of different things that we contribute to this plowing in the fields and the scattering, to this making of human society. Human beings started off as hunter-gatherers, and then they became shepherds and farmers, trading things. And then they became more than that because they added on a blacksmith, then an engineer and an accountant and a teacher and an economist and a quantity surveyor and whatever they do. And all these different things that just work together to make our society bloom. So in some ways, our harvest is out of date. If we were to bring a harvest display, maybe we should put an iPhone on it. Look at the things we produce. It's an apple. We're back to that again. Look at the things we produce. But we are dependent on God, but we are also dependent on each other. And so we can broaden out, we plough the fields and scatter to a generic we. Look what we do together. But then the rest of the hymn teaches us with the help of the Lord utterly dependent on him. In fact, economics teaches us, modern economics teaches us that we are most definitely our brother's keepers because our economy doesn't based on what we've grown in our crop, but it actually based on what comes from China and India and France and England and all these things that are interrelated in our international trade that make us richer and better off. Martin Luther King put it this way when he said in the final analysis, the rich must not ignore the poor because both the rich and the poor are tied in a single garment of destiny. All life is interrelated. All men are interdependent. The agony of the poor diminishes the rich. The salvation of the poor enlarges the rich. We are our brother's keepers because of the structure interrelated of our society. And I think in this climate change day, we are more and more aware of that than we have perhaps ever been before. We are bound together. That is what the harvest celebration reminds us. And it's one of the reasons why, rightly, at harvest celebrations, we bring an offering to God, but we have also traditionally supported those that are in need. In this harvest season, we have been gathering money through our gift day to support the work that's going on in Daisy Chain and the work that's going on with Reach Out with the Poor and those that are hard up in Motherwell. And it's right that we do that. Not just because there are 2,000 Bible verses that say we should look after the poor, but because of more than that, because as we do it, we recognize our dependency on each other 
our need for one another, our brotherhood, our sisterhood together. I was reading about food banks, and I I was struck by two stories. I don't have all the details here, but they'll, they'll make the point. One was of someone who went into a food bank in need. A simple story. But as the months went on, he got a job. And he had enough and more than enough. And so he returned to the food bank that he'd got the food in and volunteered. The circle of care. And the other was the equally an opposite story of someone who'd been working in the food bank in his spare time from his busy job, who lost his job and ended up coming to the food bank to receive food. Something about the interdependence of our society, how we depend on one another. We are our brother's keeper. We used to have this in our our idea of national insurance, didn't we? That national insurance wasn't just about as a society saying, how much tax will I pay that poor people would have enough? It was about saying, how do we devise together a welfare system where if I lose my job and my livelihood, I am provided for. And if you lose yours, you are provided for. And we do this together. And so the question isn't how much will we give the unemployed people. The question becomes, how much would we want if it were us? And we pay taxes at a level that provides. That's a whole different way of thinking about welfare, isn't it? Quite a tremendous one that brings us together. And in the church, are we not the body of Christ? We have different gifts. But we learn in Christ to be interdependent so that one preaches and the other fixes a tech desk. Because we bring different gifts that enrich and bless one another as we do that, modeling a different human society. But let's come back to Cain for a minute. The story of Cain and Abel. Because here is Cain, and not only is he not thankful, but he comes not dependent on God, dependent on his brother, but filled with jealousy and resentment. And this encounter is the opposite of gratitude. It's the opposite of thanksgiving. It's the opposite of worship. And it's so easy to have resentment in our hearts because the reality of life is this. There is always somebody who is richer than us. There is always someone who is more popular than us. There's always someone who's more successful than us. There's always someone who's more healthy than us. There's always someone who's getting more attention or more credit than me. And so resentment is at the door the whole time. It slips into our heart and our thinking. There's always someone who God seems to be blessing with more children than I have or with fewer. With more money, with less troubles. So, rather than thankfulness, resentment floods into our hearts, doesn't it? What does Jesus say about it? He says this in Matthew 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them. And what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting our worship of God, our gratitude with God, with our attitude to each other. Exactly what Genesis 4 does. The giving of gifts and the keeping of your brother go together. 
do they not? But Cain, but Cain kills his brother. They're out in the field and he sees what's going on and he assumes that there's no witnesses there. You know, this is a remarkable story. Two boys, two men sitting at worship, humming, we plow the fields and scatter one minute and out there the next minute with rage and resentment and out come the fists. But that meant that Cain was in that worship service plotting his act of vengeance on his brother. As if there was no relationship between worship and care. Between worship and love. Between gratitude to God and love for your neighbor and your brother. As if there were two compartments. But what this raises for me is this question. Have we sat in worship plotting something? Maybe not murder. But I've, I've been struck sometimes when I've been preaching that someone stops me at the door of the church with a complaint. Not against me, but against so-and-so said this, and I've not been treated well. And they may be right. But what always strikes me is you sat through worship without festering. Have you been there? Done that? Sat through worship with some sort of grievance festering. And obviously they'd sat through worship thinking, how am I going to tell somebody about this? How am I going to express this? How do I, how do I, I tell the minister in such a way sometimes that makes the person look as bad as I can? What happened? before God in that 40 minutes before. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But Jesus said, but he said, you know, go, go and make things right. You can't have these two things compartmentalized. They have to go together. Because you see, when you worship, there's always a brother or a sister. When you worship, there's always a relationship to work at. When you worship, there's always a reconciliation to happen. When you worship, there's always a love to be received or given. A place to grow. A barrier to come down. Every Cain has his Abel. Every Jacob has his Esau. Every Joseph has his Judah. We could go on and go on and go on. We worship today, we are aware of being part of a worldwide church. What does that mean? As we think about our use of a planet and how it impacts those in Malawi, Bangladesh, there's always a brother. And God will not have a relationship to us which doesn't relate to that. Where is your brother Abel? Says the Lord to Cain. Where is your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? He's not my problem. He's not my responsibility. It's got nothing to do with me and you, God. That's just something else. Now, it's easy to read this passage and we immediately think we are keen. Sorry, we are able in this. We are the victim. We are the person that's hard done by but that's not what Scripture does. It tells us, do not be like Cain. 
Who are you jealous of? Who are you undermining by your thoughts, or your words? Who do you resent? Who can you not wait to wash your hands of? Who are you denying responsibility for? All of these questions are raised by this passage. We are our brother's keeper. We are supposed to care and be concerned and to cherish, to delight in each other. Not to compete or compare or resent, but to love. Why? Because just as we create, as God is the creator, we procreate, so we are those that are to love because the nature of our God is love. And so we bring in our harvest, not with resentment, but with gratitude, not with contempt, but with care. And the gospel means, you know, we all have an elder brother. And that elder brother, well, he's fantastic. That elder brother, he has a relationship with God that's well beyond ours. That elder brother, he is perfect in every way without sin. That sometimes can leave us feeling pretty miserable. But he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. And that changes everything. Jesus is our able, and we are the keen. He gives his best for us, and our hearts respond in worship. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word.